Wow, uh, quite a lot of reading. Thank you so very much. Uh, it's almost as if you do or have done that for a living. Um, if you didn't know that, now you know. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you, Lydia. Thank you to the worship team for leading us in songs that so beautifully pointed to Christ. Uh, it's, it's all because of Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. Uh, that's why we read the Word and look to apply it to our lives. Uh, so hey, allow me to, to in- introduce my, myself. If you don't know me, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. And that means uh, that I get the honor and the privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. And so as you can tell from that reading, we are in the book of Exodus. We're in, in a series through Exodus. And uh, we've got, as, as you just experienced, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So let's just jump right in if you're ready. Are you ready? All right, let's go. So the book of Exodus, just as a, a um, this won't be a recap, but this will just be a necessary uh, I, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, introduction, or kind of lay out some groundwork for where we're going to go. The book of Exodus is really important because it tells us that redemption, which is what our faith is, is built upon, that redemption begins with God remembering his covenant promises that he offered in Genesis. So the promises that God made in Genesis were to defeat Satan through the offspring of the woman, right? We see that in Genesis chapter 3. And then from there, we see the promise that God gave to Abraham to give him an offspring that, that would uh, really go throughout all of the families of, uh, and bless all of the earth, Genesis chapter 12. And then we see another promise given to Abraham that the, the offspring will go into captivity for a time, which takes us into where we are now in this, uh, the story of Exodus, that they would go into captivity for a time, but they will return to the promised land, Genesis chapter 15. And then Exodus opens up with God remembering his covenant with Abraham. Right? And if you've been with us through this series, you've heard this time and time again. But it's, it's God saying that he's going to come down and he's going to redeem his people through the acts of Moses. He's going to use Moses as his hands and feet and his mouth to, to carry out his will in Egypt for his people Israel. So through Moses, God redeems his people out of the land of Egypt. And central to this redemption that we see running throughout the book of Exodus is two things, and that is judgment and salvation. Okay, judgment and salvation. Judgment on, on Pharaoh and the land of Egypt, but not only that, also the, the gods, the false religious system of the Egyptians. Right? Judgment is being, is being poured out on all of those things. And we see this in the form of the plagues, which is we're going to look at six of the ten this morning. But not only do we see judgment, we also see salvation. Salvation throughout the plagues for Israel. Salvation in the form of redemption and saying, I made this promise with you. I will bring you out of the land. I I have a land that I have promised to you and I will see that through. So salvation in in the form of those things. Let me remind you that through all of that, the the story that we see running throughout the, the, the Exodus account is God's covenant faithfulness. And then God is 
faithful. He makes promises to his people. He makes covenants with his people, and he is faithful to see those things through. So that's the first one. You've heard these a number of times, but the second one is God's deliverance. God will deliver his people, and nothing will stand in his way ever. And then third and final is is God's presence. And church, that's such a beautiful thing. I don't know if you, if, if, if you really sense that, that we are ones who hold on to a faith, that the only faith that believes in a living, active, present God. He is present in our lives. He's present, he's present in the lives of the Israelites in the book of Exodus. So I want to look at these plagues, but before we do, I want, I want to point out something to you. This, this Exodus account, these plagues, the way that, that the world has sought to approach uh, these ten plagues. I was doing some looking this week, and I, I came across a Time Magazine article that came out just last year. Uh, so it's recent. Time Magazine article put out last year, and the, the title of that article was, very simply, Did the Ten Plagues of Egypt Really Happen? And in that article, they do maintain that it, it does seem historically that these things happened, right? So they're admitting that, but, but they're, they're admitting that it, it didn't happen in the ways that it happened, which probably doesn't come as a surprise. But in this article, they provide three theories that I'm just going to go through really quickly because it isn't my point. Three theories given by the scientific community that could explain these events that take place in Exodus. And those three theories are a volcanic eruption that was believed to have happened in Greece, right? That threw ash into the sky and created acid rain and, and changed uh, the color of the water and killed the fish, which made the frogs leave the, the river and, and the frogs died and then the flies. And you see it just on and on, like a domino effect, just one after another, these things happened. The problem is that based on Biblical scholars, when we think the Exodus account happened, this volcanic eruption happened 300 years before the ten plagues that we have in the book of Exodus. Not only that, they go on to, to say that, well, maybe, maybe it happened by this very specific and toxic red algae that grows in warm, stagnant water. Right? And I'm not going to go into all of those things, but just know that it's another domino effect that causes all of these things to happen. And then the third and, and last one is just very simply climate change. Climate change made all of these things happen. And this is the article that, that I read. I'm not making it up. I'm giving it to you exactly as I read it. And so, so throughout this, they, they, they give these theories to explain the events that occurred. And, and I want you to know that here at Freshwater Church, we believe in the authoritative and inerrant word of God. Amen? That means, if you don't know, that we believe that it says what it says, and it doesn't have errors in it, right? So if we come across something that's difficult to understand or make sense of, then, then the work is on us through, through the power of the Holy Spirit to come to an understanding of that text, all right? And that's a whole other sermon that I, that I can and would love to preach, but it can't be this morning, so let me get back on track. We believe that the ten plagues, according to the word of God, literally happened. Just as scripture says they happened. 
And they happen, as we'll see as, as, as I get in a, f- a little f- further along, that they, they happened as acts of divine justice by God against the oppressors of his people, which is Egypt. The Egyptians are oppressing his people, Israel. And these plagues demonstrate the power of the one true God. And they expose the false gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And they not only did all of those things, but they also showed God's mercy. Yes, even the ten plagues, they showed God's mercy as he withheld them from affecting the Israelites. And interestingly, each plague seems to correspond, which we'll get into here in just a moment, but it seems to correspond with some of the Egyptians' gods specifically that the Egyptians served. And that this would serve as proof, certainly to the Egyptians, but also to the Israelites, that God is the one and true sovereign Lord. He is the, the Lord of lords. Now, to be fair, the events found in Exodus, if, if they are true, which we believe they are, but I'm speaking for, the, the, again, the scientific community, if, if they are at the very least historically true, then I understand why the world has to come up with theories to explain why they happened. Right? Because if they don't, then they have to admit that they were caused another way. And that other way would be a divine creator. A, a higher power. And, and I believe it's safe to assume that for people who oppose God, they're not going to do that. They're not going to make that kind of admission. Because that would make God sovereign. And, and listen, church, the sovereignty of God, which we're going to see play out so beautifully through this text, the sovereignty of God says that he is Lord over all creation, all of it, everything. He is Lord over all of it. And he exercises his rule. So this brings us to something that Pharaoh said, I, w- I want to remind us of. Something that Pharaoh said in this exchange between Moses and Pharaoh in, chap- in, in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, there's this exchange that's taking place between Moses and Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says something very interesting. He says, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice, that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I I will not let Israel go. So understand something. Pharaoh believed that he was a living God. He was divine. And his response to Moses in saying, the Lord commands you to do this, he says, who is God that I should listen to him? I'm Pharaoh. I don't know him. I'm not going to listen to him. I will not do this thing that your God commands. And then if you were to flip over a few pages to Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, we'll see God's response. The Lord says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts My people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And listen to this line right here. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So because of Pharaoh's statement in chapter 5, we see that God delivers his judgment upon Egypt in the form of ten plagues. 
And as I already stated, I think it's safe to also see these plagues as an attack on, Egypt, on, on the Egyptians' false religion. I want to point out as well, though, that there were, there were, some t- there were over 2,000 deities, 2,000 gods, lowercase g, that, that the Egyptians worshipped. And so this morning... I'm going to, to give you the ones that I think will, these, these plagues will speak to the, the, the clearest. Now, there are, there are others that I'm sure could fit throughout, but I'm going to give you the ones that most frequ- are most frequently connected so that you can see what God is doing. So let's go right straight to that. Uh, we'll go back to Exodus chapter 7, and I'm just going to read 16 through 19. Exodus 7, 16 through 19. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So what we see here is is God instructing Moses to go out and to meet with Pharaoh at the Nile. This, This massive river, understand, is believed to be divine by the Egyptians. They believe that the river itself is a god of sorts. And this river is massive, especially during what we believe this time of the year is, somewhere around July to August. This is when the river would have flooded beyond its normal uh, borders, its banks. It would flood beyond its banks. And this river was so massive, and it was considered, as I said, to, to be uh, divine because it, it contributed to Egypt's livelihood and prosperity. Right? Because it would fill the soil with so many minerals and cause their crops to grow in abundance. All right, and so stemming from what we covered last week, we see that Moses was to inform Pharaoh that since he wouldn't listen to God's command to release the Israelites, the Lord would show him exactly who he is. And he's going to hit him where it hurts. Now, as I indicated, the Egyptians are polytheistic. That means they, they, they serve a multitude of gods. So Pharaoh wouldn't have had a problem, I think, with acknowledging the God of the Israelites. When Moses comes to him and says, this is what the Lord of the Hebrews says, right? Hebrews and Israelites, same people. I don't think that Pharaoh would have had a problem hearing that because he believed in a multitude of gods. The problem was, is he didn't believe that that God had authority over him. So he wouldn't have acknowledged God and his authority and his power and his might. Instead, as I said, he saw himself as a living God and he failed to submit. But Moses gives directions in response to Aaron and he tells him to hold his staff. We see the staff once again used as an instrument by God to perform these miraculous signs. Aaron holds his staff over the waters of Egypt and they turn to blood. Now, listen, the Hebrew word for blood in this passage of Scripture is important. 
right? Because this will take us back to the, the, the theories that I shared with you just a moment ago. The Hebrew word used here for blood means the actual substance of blood. It's crazy, right? It means what it says. And it means it in the sense of like the blood of a man or an animal. It means blood. And so if we believe in the word of God, we believe that it's blood. It doesn't denote a red coloring of the water that would have happened from a red clay or a red algae that that came downstream and caused the water of the Nile to turn red and to turn toxic and to kill the fish. It doesn't mean that. It says blood. Not only that, we see in verse 19, which I'm not going to read again, but even the vessels of wood and stone were affected. Even they became blood. So it seems that the extent of this first plague shows really clearly that it can't be explained by simply the results of natural causes. It's the hand of God. He's showing his might to Egypt. We're told that the Egyptians were able to to duplicate this miracle in some form. I don't know what that means or what what that looked like exactly. But it caused Pharaoh's stubbornness to remain. Right? He hardened his heart. And isn't it, isn't it kind of crazy, church, to think about this? What the magicians did, like they responded to a miracle of God by replicating the same thing rather than taking it away. Doesn't that seem rather, rather silly and revealing that they couldn't take away this, this plague? All they could do was replicate it. It says that for seven days, seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile, and that brings us into chapter 8. All right, we're going we're gonna to continue to move rather quickly through this, so, so stay with me. We're going to go to, to Exodus chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. The Nile shall swim with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all of your servants. So God again instructs Moses, go back to Pharaoh. Command him to release the Israelites or he will face further judgment. In verse 2 of chapter 8, God says, if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague your country with frogs. Now in the New American Standard Bible, it says, I will smite your whole territory, meaning to strike with a firm and heavy blow. Now, let me ask you, when, when you think of God striking a land with a firm and heavy blow, do you think of frogs? Because I don't. Like, I'm not a fan of frogs, so I wouldn't welcome it, but at the same time, I'm thinking, frogs? Stay with me, though. Frogs were not surprisingly, really abundant in the Nile after the floodwaters had receded. But this isn't in a time where the waters uh, are receded. They're still at their flood banks. And rather than staying near the Nile, like they would have typically done, these frogs left the river and they invaded houses and bedrooms and beds and ovens and kneading bowls. Like you got frogs in the bowl that you're making bread. They went into the houses of the servants and of all the Egyptian people and even into their ovens and kneading bowls. The Egyptians, this is important because the Egyptians considered frogs to have divine power. 
Shocking, right? We're going to find out the Egyptians thought pretty much everything had divine power, but even the frogs. They worshipped a goddess named Heket, who was in the form of a woman, but who had the head of a frog, which is really sweet and endearing to create a god like that. And they believed that she literally breathed life out of her nostrils that brought life into the bodies who were created by her husband, Knum. And so therefore, frogs were considered divine and they were not to be killed. And God was causing, listen to this, God was causing one of their own deities to curse them and to inflict them with pain. We see again Pharaoh's magicians. They're able to replicate the miracle. I don't know what, how they do that or to what extent, but again, ironically increasing their suffering rather than taking it away. The magicians lure more frogs out of the river. And I got to think that Pharaoh is probably like, that's not what I wanted. Because he goes to Moses and he pleads with him to take the frogs away. He's now distressed to the point that he's willing to go to Moses and and to plead with him and to grant him the appeal that he had. Now, it's important to to remember Pharaoh's acting as if this is on his authority. He still has the authority. He's holding on to it to keep Israel or or to let them go. But his request to Moses, I think, shows, whether he knows it or not, his admission to the power belonging to God. He's starting to recognize something. Therefore, Moses, he allows Pharaoh to set a timetable for him. Do you know why? Because if Pharaoh says, let's do it at 3 p.m. tomorrow, Moses is like, bet. We'll do it at 3 p.m. tomorrow because that's how big my God is. He'll do it on the dot. Right? He's not going to do it before or after. He's going to do it right on the dot so you know exactly who he is because he has all power, all authority. He controls all things. And he wanted Pharaoh to know. So we see Moses, he prays to God, causes the plague to stop. The frogs die, every single one of them. Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, that there was relief. And what does he do? He hardens his heart once again. And he doesn't listen to Moses, and he will not let his people go. Which brings us over into the third plague. Sorry, my, my screen just went kind of crazy. Uh, so turn to verse 16. Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. The third plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and he struck the dust of the earth and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Now, unlike the first two plagues, this one came without any warning. It could have been because Pharaoh said that he would let him go, took, went back on his word, So Moses tells Aaron to strike the dust with his staff, and when he does, that it will become gnats all over the land of Egypt. 
Now, this was an attack on the Egyptian god Geb, who was the god of the earth, and very specifically the god of the desert. And what's in the desert? Dust. Aaron strikes the dust, it turns to gnats. So Geb is helpless to do anything for the Egyptians. Now, interestingly, the, the Hebrew word for, for gnat in, in this passage of Scripture, it's only used here and in, in one other verse in Psalm 105. So I say that to tell you that the meaning isn't exactly clear. If it means literal gnats or if it means something else. And I'm going to give you what it is believed that these could have been and explain why. It's been interpreted by uh, biblical language scholars that this either means gnats or mosquitoes or lice. So, let change it a little bit. Right? Gnats, that's bad. Um, mosquitoes and lice thing is, we don't know, but we know that it was an, an unbearable infestation, infestation that the magicians couldn't replicate. And they admitted to Pharaoh that they believed that this was caused by the finger of God. I believe that we're beginning to see some of Pharaoh's own servants recognizing what Pharaoh fails to see. And that is the God who sent Moses and Aaron has shown up and he has shown his power over all of Egypt. And it's Pharaoh's own defiance that's harming his own people. But just as God said he would do, Pharaoh, he hardens his heart again and he refuses to let the people go. He would not listen. So in verse 21... We'll see. I know we're moving through these quickly. But in verse 21 through and 22, we see the fourth plague of flies. Verse 21, it says, Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, remember, that's where the Israelites are, where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So the Lord once again instructs Moses to go confront Pharaoh Tell him to release the Israelite people. And God says that if he refuses, then he will send swarms, plural, swarms of flies on Pharaoh and his servants and his people and into their houses. Now again, I want to go back to the original language and, and the phrase that's used in the Hebrew, great swarms, is, is really interesting because it's translated literally as a heavy or oppressive swarm. And some biblical scholars, again, suggest that it could mean many different types of flying insects. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually refers to them as a dogfly. It says that in the text, and a dogfly would be like a horsefly. It bites, and it sucks the blood out of its host. Also, it could be what's referred to as an ichneumon fly, which is really important because 
the ichneumon fly is a manifestation of an Egyptian god named Wajet. Now, the ichneumon fly is a really lovely thing that flies around and lays its eggs inside other living things so that the larva can hatch and feast upon that thing. So if that's the case, and we have biting, blood-sucking horseflies, uh, I think that gives us a little bit more to consider about this plague. This contributed, we know, to the land being laid waste. So whatever the type of fly it may have been, it doesn't really matter. We know that the effect of the plague was intense and distressful. Now, while I believe the first three plagues were restricted to the Egyptians as well, this, verse, or this passage, verse 22, makes it clear that the effects will be on only Egypt and not the Israelites. And this is, again, so that Pharaoh would know, as God spoke, I am the Lord. I'm in the midst of the land. I am God. Because remember what Pharaoh said in chapter 5, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? I don't know him. Do you think that maybe Pharaoh is beginning to see who the Lord is? We know that as a result of the damage caused by the plagues that, that Pharaoh begins to plead more and more with Moses. He does it more often. And he does it in order to gain relief while he's still being stubborn and refusing to listen. But he offers up a compromise, and he, and he tells Moses, I'll let you and your people make your sacrifices here in the land. But Moses says this is unacceptable because the practices of the Hebrews would have been unacceptable to the Egyptians, whether it's because the Egyptians hated shepherds and shepherding and probably looked on that whole, uh, that whole practice in, in uh, disdain, or maybe even more likely because Israel's sacrificial systems were considered sacred. Their sacrificial animals, rather, were considered sacred by the Egyptians. So this seems like an acceptable response to Pharaoh because he comes back with a second compromise and he says, okay, I'll allow you to go a short distance out into the wilderness, but you cannot go very far. And Moses agrees. Warns the Pharaoh, though, hey, listen, this time, don't be deceitful, don't lie which would have been a really powerful statement coming from Moses because Pharaoh was supposed to be a symbol of truth, trust, and justice. So, so Moses is like, listen, man, don't, like, don't go back on it. Don't lie this time. Stick to your word. And as you know, God removes the flies up to the point where the text tells us not one remained. He removed them all, and Pharaoh hardened his heart and went back on his word. Which brings us to chapter 9, and we see the plague upon livestock. Looking specifically at verses 1 through 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock and that are in the field. 
the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. So once again, Moses goes to Pharaoh. He demands that the Israelites will be let go. He says, if Pharaoh refuses, then the hand of God would come with a severe pestilence on all of Egypt's livestock. Right? Not just the cattle, but all of their livestock. Killing all of their, their cattle, their horses, their donkeys. This was a clear attack on Egypt's entire way of life. It would have devastated their economy. Not only that, it was a clear attack on the god Hathor, who had a head of a cow. Right? This was the, the goddess of love and protection. And God makes it clear that, that he reigns over all of it, and he's going to do away with all of it. And so he does, to the point where all of their livestock is dead, is gone. But Pharaoh wants to send out a representative to go see in the land of Goshen to see if it happened as, as Moses said it would happen, to see if the livestock still remains in the land of Goshen. The report comes back that not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead. Up to this point, like just what we've covered so far, is God showing his might or what? God is making it clear. But yet, Pharaoh's heart was still hardened and he still refused to let Israel go. So we have one more, which is boils. Chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So this is the last judgment that, that we'll cover today. And this is another one that happens unannounced. And it's also the first to cause what seems to be really significant harm to human life. And this isn't an attempt to be graphic, but I'm, I'm going to give you some pretty specific details. The, the Hebrew word here, once again, that's used for boil, is used in other passages to designate leprosy and is also very literally translated as an inflamed, eruptive, ulcerative spot on the skin. So the Egyptians, all of the Egyptians and all of the animals that remained, whatever they might have been, it says that they were affected by this. The Egyptians who were affected by this worshipped yet another god by the name of Isis, or a goddess, and she was the goddess of medicine and health. 
They also worshipped another goddess by the name of Sekhmet, who was the goddess who had power over disease. And so God's just laying waste to their religious system. Their gods could not deliver them from the torment of the plague. Not only that, but the magicians, the magicians of Egypt were also so greatly affected by this disease that they were unable to even stand before Moses. The passage then tells us that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So that was a lot to cover, and I know we went through it quick, but here is what I want us to take away from all of that. God's attributes, or, or his character, was revealed through these plagues. In them, we, we see that God is the all-powerful, incomparable, eternally faithful and just God who sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And church, hear me, I don't say that as a means of, of discouragement or, or to, to bog you down with, with fear. I say that to give you comfort. Because God isn't like the false gods who need to be served by mankind. And whenever man messed up in their service to their false gods, those false gods would punish them. God doesn't operate this way. He isn't like the false gods. Our God is holy, and he commands holiness from us. And he commands that in the form of obedience to his word. And when we disobey, yes, we will be at times punished by the Lord, but that punishment comes out of love and not hatred or anger. Because God isn't fickle. He doesn't change. He remains the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's showing us that through the plagues, that he won't be outdone that he won't be blasphemed that he, he, won't, he won't allow his covenant people to be oppressed beyond what, what he deemed acceptable and he, he will deliver them from their oppressors he is the only perfect one and he calls his people to faithfulness and fidelity to him because, listen, his ways are always right and good. So in the same way that he's, he's seen Israel as his covenantal people and he's, he's, he's bringing them unto himself, he's, he's delivering on his promises. Understand, church, that we are that today. We are, the church is the, the covenantal people of God. And he still calls us to faithfulness. Now, maybe someone thinks that it might seem unjust for God to have hardened Pharaoh's heart and then to punish Pharaoh and his people for what Pharaoh decided in his heart, which was hardened by God. 
It seems wrong to us that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart just so that he could judge Egypt more severely. But don't forget that, that Pharaoh, he wasn't innocent. He wasn't a godly man. He was an idolater and a brutal dictator overseeing terrible abuse and oppression of the Israelites. He was a wicked man who opposed God in every possible way. Who here, if you experienced just the six plagues that we covered this morning, would, con would continue to resist? When you see the hand of God work in such a mighty and declarative way, consider the condition your heart would have to be in. Also, remember that in at least a couple of instances, Pharaoh hardened his own heart against letting the Israelites go. So it's both the Lord and Pharaoh who were active in one way or another in hardening his heart. Not only that, but God gave Pharaoh warnings through Moses of the coming judgments, telling him to, to do the right thing. And Pharaoh chose to bring further judgment on himself and his nation by hardening his own heart against God. And then also, I want to go over to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 17 through 23. I read this, and, and then I want us to, to really start to, to try to bring this down to, to right here, to our, to our own hearts, to see how these plagues can and should apply to our lives today. But Romans chapter 9, verses 17 through 23 reads, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So understand something, that, that God is very much present and at work in the lives of his people. Whether it is in the form of softening our hearts and, and drawing us unto himself, or in hardening the hearts of those that he's created in order to show his might and his glory. Because isn't that exactly what he's doing in the story of these plagues. He is showing Egypt, and is the Israelites for that matter, exactly who he is. And praise God that we have this account in the scriptures so that we can do the same thing. Right? If we hold to the scriptures in the way that I claimed at the beginning that we do, then we believe this is true. And if it's true, then we too 
can do the very same thing in seeing this great, big, grand, magnificent God who sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So here's how I want it to land with us today as I close. If you're here today and you haven't believed in and confessed Christ as your Savior, right? We sang these songs this morning about Christ and all of his work. If he hasn't paid for the, the, if the debt of your sin, if, he hasn't, if you haven't been pulled out of a, a life of sin and death, if you haven't been redeemed and, and declared innocent before a holy and just God, then I want you to know that, that you're sitting in the same place that Pharaoh was. You're, you're sitting in a place as, and this is strong language, but stay, stay with me. You're sitting in the place of being an enemy to God. You oppose God. Your heart, your heart is hardened. And I don't say those things, again, to, to, to dissuade you or, or to discourage you. I, I want you to, to hear the pleading in, in my heart to see Christ as the answer, to see him as your savior, to see him as the one who paid the debt that you couldn't pay. If you are sitting in that place and understand that the Lord doesn't see you belonging to him in the way that the Israelites did. If you can't declare today that Jesus is your Lord, if you haven't sought with the help of the Holy Spirit to leave that old life of sin behind you, to strive to walk in holiness, then I'm sorry to say that, that you are an enemy of God. But listen, church, there is hope. There is hope in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you don't know him, then respond. Please, respond to him today. If you know here today that you're in Christ, but you're not living in the trust and rest of a sovereign God, if you're still trying to hold on to things for yourself, or, or if you're trying to do things your own way, and I ask you to see God for who he is. See who he is in this account of the plagues. He is the great I am. And he is calling you to respond to him today as well and to surrender all of those things and confess your need to surrender to him completely. Church, we, we serve a great and, and mighty God who loves us, yes, but he is also a God of justice. And so I plead with you, take that seriously and respond. Go to him in prayer. If you need someone to talk to, to pray with, I'll be over here along with some others. Come and, and, and let's pray. And let's respond to the way that, that you feel the, that the Lord is, is working in your heart let me pray.
Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for your word that we have such a magnificent and, and miraculous account of, Lord, you revealing to mankind exactly who you are, that you're unlike any other, that you are a good God who loves his people, who remains steadfast and patient with his people, who remembers his promises. You will not forsake us or leave us ever. Help us to take comfort in that, Lord. And Father, if, if we come to a place in our lives where we are just going through the motions and, and really just kind of living as Christian in name only, not relying on you as being the sovereign one in our lives, Lord, then, then I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to come and convict us of that and stir up our affections for you and, and, and help, help us to recenter our lives in you. Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would just grip their heart with conviction this morning. That they would respond. Admit that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And we know based on your word that that, that, that Savior is only Christ. And He is alive. And because of that fact, Lord, we give you praise. We lift up our voices to you in songs of praise, prayers of thanksgiving, that our Savior is alive. He conquered sin and death and brought us back into right relationship with you, Lord. Thank you. We are eternally grateful and indebted to you. Help us to give our lives entirely to you in that service, Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.